ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper and it's great to have your company. This week, farewelling the family farm. After five generations and more than 130 years on the land near the New South Wales-Queensland border, one family has made the tough decision to sell up. While there's some sadness as they get ready to say goodbye, there's also many happy memories and we'll hear some of them, from droughts to flooding rains and everything in between. We'll catch up with some teenagers who are getting involved in a project to restore a degraded landscape. They're collecting native seeds that will be planted out to revegetate the local area. And we'll meet a family who've taken not a sea change or a tree change, but a rock change. From their suburban Gold Coast home, they've moved hundreds of kilometres inland to live at the foot of an ancient gorge with towering rock formations. And they're loving the change of lifestyle. Just that change of pace and the serenity that we have out here and, you know, the peace and the seclusion and being in touch with nature and the fresh air and as much as anything, this has been about, you know, finding ourselves as a family, as a husband and wife and just finding some more joy in my soul of being here and being in nature and being with my family, doing something I love. It's just been really refreshing. It's been just such a great change of life. We'll hear more about that move and what inspired it. That's coming up a little later. First today, the early months of life with a new baby can be an isolating experience for many first-time parents. Throw into that living on a remote cattle station thousands of kilometres from family and friends with just your partner for company and support. Maddie Starr found herself in that situation when three months after giving birth, she was offered her dream job overseeing a Kimberley cattle station on the WANT border. She spoke to reporter Alice Marshall. I was pretty scared. I think the first initial months were probably easier than the months to come because the first few months you're so trying to settle in, get into what you're doing. You're busy. You're full head down busy because that's that's what you've got to do. Um, so the first few months weren't so bad. I think it was probably the third month after being here that I realised that, oh, it's just us. You know, yeah, your mates are a phone call away, but it's not always the same. Um, it's It can be harder to talk over a phone than it is face-to-face, and I guess you don't really get those emotions um, and, you know, you can tell your friends you're fine, but really, you're not always. Is that something that you did a bit, tell your friends you were fine? Oh, always, yeah. I, I was always fine. There was there was nothing ever wrong. Yep, loving life. This, this is, yeah, the dream. Do you think that there was a bit of pressure that you put on yourself to love every second of it? As you say, like, this is a dream job and, and you came out here... And, feeling like you had this amazing opportunity. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, we really wanted to show that we could do this. Um, to us, it was kind of an opportunity and we really wanted to make the most of this opportunity and, you know, work, work and show that we were worthy of this opportunity. I think, yeah, also and just trying to show that, yeah, I'm okay and that, yeah, everything's fine, everything's fun, um, which... <laughs> might not necessarily be but that was kind of what you wanted to do and yeah you did you put on a face to say that yep it's a dream. How did your relationship with Joel change considering a both becoming parents and then b stepping into this new role together? 
I think we struggled. I, I don't think, I know we struggled. The relationship, it really was just us. So it, I think it put a lot more strain on us because Joel became my coffee date friend, my go-to friend when I needed to have a little whinge about something. Joel became everything. It was, it was only Joel and I. So we really needed to work together as a team and I think that did put a lot of strain on us because we didn't have other people to go to and yeah that, that was hard. I didn't enjoy oh, being inside all day which I wasn't but I did miss getting out and about a bit but it was hard with Wyatt because I couldn't leave him for more than three hours because he was breastfed um, and you know I wanted to go to the yards and work cattle because I missed that kind of stuff. I, th I think it came down to one night I was quite upset and I just said to him, I said, I'm, I'm miserable. I, I see you going out and doing everything that I want to be doing and I'm not doing it. And I think in a way, a bit of me wanted to resent Wyatt for that because I felt like I was trapped. In all honesty, all it took was the conversation and we sorted it out within a day. We were like, right, this is what we're going to do. But I didn't want to bring up that conversation because I didn't want to seem ungrateful or that it was too much. So I was happy to just keep sucking it up and going with it. Is it something that you thought when you were pregnant and looking at your relationship and even when you got here with the tiny baby and you just started off, did you ever think that you needed to have it until you had it? No, definitely not. I think, you know, when you're living in town, you've got other alternatives of childcare, friends, um, to take turns with, with the child. And it's definitely something that I never thought we'd have to cross because it, in hindsight, at the time it was going to work. Everything was, yep, go to childcare, we'll both go back to work and we'll, we'll both have him at night time. But out here, it's obviously not like that. It's not something you think in your mind prior that, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to talk about this one day, but it wasn't. Do you think the assumption was, even if you you didn't vocalise it, that you'd become a stay-at-home mum? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's definitely not Joel's intentions either. He is definitely big on me and Wyatt getting out and about. He wants us both involved in everything. But unintentionally, he was yeah doing things without realising that, oh, maybe Maddie would like to come for a drive today and get out of the house for a bit. But um, I, th I think in this role as well as a woman in ag, it is, I guess, still that stereotypical expectation that the woman is at home. And that's, that's not always the case. It's, but it still is big in this industry at the moment. It, not much has changed yet to change people's minds. Do you think that the onus to talk about this thing comes down to women yeah definitely um I've spoken to friends and things who I know struggle with topics of conversations that I've had because yeah their, their partners don't want to talk about it um and I I do often think that sometimes women are afraid or unsure how to voice it as well which plays a big role in the unable to communicate it's it's both sides are very unsure on what to say. Men don't want to bring it up and women don't know how to say it, I think, a lot of the time.
spending more time together during COVID lockdowns convinced Queensland couple Adam and Sarah Louise Spencer that they needed a change from their suburban Gold Coast life. Turns out I like my wife and I like being around her and you know, loved having lunch with her during the day. You know, my relationship with my wife changed just by being around more. It made you think just how important that was and made you start thinking, you know, is there a different way to live life? Is there a different way to do life as a family together? Hello, I'm Grace Whiteside. I'm visiting the couple and the two youngest of their five sons at their new home, about 500 kilometres northwest of Brisbane. The family bought a caravan park near Cania Gorge and made the move here last November. Now they are embracing their new life, far from the hustle and bustle of city living on the doorstep of the ancient gorge. They're reconnecting with nature and enjoying the serenity of this lesser-known national park in Queensland's North Burnett region. The Spencers say the move has brought them closer as a family. Just that change of pace and the serenity that we have out here and, you know, the peace and the seclusion and being in touch with nature and the fresh air and as much as anything, this has been about, you know, finding ourselves as a family, as a husband and wife and just finding some more joy in my soul of being here and being in nature and being with my family, doing something I love. It's just been really refreshing. It's been just such a great change of life. Sarah Louise Spencer says it was a now or never moment. It's been good. It's been different. It's certainly a different life up here to what we had. It's rewarding in that we're building something for our future, for our family, and uh, we've made some positive life changes for ourselves. The Spencers have five sons, aged 23, 19, 17, 16 and 12. Their youngest, Ethan, says he's enjoying the change of lifestyle. Going quite good. I find that I can do way more stuff that I wouldn't be able to do if I still lived in the city, like climbing up caves, climbing trees, just generally exploring around. Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service ranger in charge for Monto, Peter Pickering, says 80 to 100,000 visitors explore Cania Gorge each year. We've noticed a, a, an increase, a definite increase since COVID. But what we have noticed over the last couple of years is um, we used to have a lot of peaks and troughs with the visitation. So you long weekends, school holidays, things, you'd have fairly large increases and then it would settle back quite quiet during the other periods, that's levelled out a lot more. So there seems to be a, a fairly constant visitation in the last couple of years with the, the low periods not being quite as low anymore. It's very accessible, easy access to get to it. You know, it's Bitumen Road right to it and through it. We're only a couple of hours from the coast. It's also, it's the most eastern section of the gorge system, like your Carnarvon gorge type system. So it's um it gives you like a nearly like a mini snapshot of of Carnarvon. Gadarjal Development Corporation chief executive and Garangarang man Dr. Kerry Blackman says the gorge is equivalent to a monumental building. It was used as a, our cathedral in conducting ceremonies, uh, laws and customs. Uh, it would have been a place of you know birthing place. It would have been a place of death and burial. 
um, all sorts of ceremonies. Dr Blackman says while the 20,000-year-old Aboriginal artwork is too fragile for tourist traffic, there are clear opportunities to share Indigenous heritage. You don't want to shut it off to the world. You want people to have that cultural tourism experience, visitor experience around Aboriginal culture, you know, and it's got it all, you know, and um, be good to have tours out there that are led by Aboriginal people, telling the stories, the Dreamtime stories, uh, telling people how we um, lived there, um, our ancestors lived there. Um, because it's a hidden secret. A lot of people don't know about it and um, it'd be good to showcase our culture. That report from Grace Whiteside at Kania Gorge in Queensland's North Burnett region. You can read more on that story on the ABC website. Just search for A Big Country. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. Still to come, we're heading into the bush with young people who are helping collect native seeds for a regeneration project. And after more than 130 years in one family, a farm on the New South Wales-Queensland border will soon be handed over to a new owner. The Amos family have bred merino sheep on their property, Barumba, for five generations. And Lara Webster has their story. For Les Amos, home has never been anywhere else but Burrumbah. His great-grandfather, Cole Amos, is the one who founded the enterprise all the way back in 1891. You know, you've got to take your hat off to my, to um, our forefathers, that's for sure, for the hardships they put it, they had to put up with. You know, you've, this is before any motor car, before, um, probably before telephones, for that matter, or Communication, you know, I think communication sort of have to go probably via Cobb Co. Now, as the fourth generation, he's made the decision to sell. It's been difficult. It's been emotional. But with three daughters, all who have successful careers in other towns, it's the only logical solution. No, it's been very hard. Uh, it's something we were never going to do. And I was always brought up that you never ever sell property. And but times change and uh, circumstances change. I think Annette and I are sort of, my wife, that's my wife and I, we find it harder now, harder to get um, good help. Uh, it's harder to get staff. And, you know, bigger properties are harder to run on, on, on your own. You've got to have outside help. And we sort of probably got to a point where... Uh, it's hard to get that. It leads us to, I suppose, that whole succession planning scenario, doesn't it? And that, that, that can be very difficult sometimes. I mean, you have three daughters, all of them who are, are very successful off the farm. That's right. And, and we went through, we, we obviously had big family talks about it all. Um, and I guess... The deal breaker was if someone wanted to come home, we'd work with that. Um, but I think they're all happier and happy in their own skin where they're at. Um, and we didn't want to put pressure on them, you know, to be this next generational farmer if they didn't want to be. Um, so yeah, they they've all done their own thing. And I think the other thing is, I mean. We haven't got a lot of assets outside the farm, so when it comes to us passing, 
it's very difficult to leave one the whole property and then the other two with not much because you really need the whole property for one family to make a living. It's what will be hard. The last time we drive out this down this road, uh, it will be sad. And I don't think I'll be in a hurry to look back, but life's got to move forward, hasn't it? For Les and wife Annette's oldest daughter, Annabelle Hudson, it's also been a difficult decision. She's sat around the table, had phone conversations with her sisters, but she says they've all been on the same page, that none of them felt they wanted to take the family farm on. But that hasn't made the decision any easier. Conversations around what would happen with the farm have started, you know, years and years ago. And, you know, it's it's not a surprise for us that this has come, but I think we had really open discussions around what we wanted to do on the farm, whether we still wanted to be involved with the farm. And, you know, it's a really tough and emotional decision for dad and and mum because it has been in the family for so long. And But at the end of the day, from my perspective, I just felt like it had to be treated as if it was a business transaction. I think I had to remove myself and my emotional attachment to it because it's really hard to make those decisions. And look, I've ha- I've we've always been encouraged to pursue careers off the farm. Not to say that we were deterred from, you know, if we wanted to come back to the farm, I'm sure we would have that would have been encouraged too. But all three of us have found careers in different areas across the country from Dolby to Dubbo and Sydney. So we've all kind of taken our own direction. Um, and when mum and dad sat us all down and kind of asked what we wanted to do, like I was very straightforward in saying, look, I don't have any interest in it. I know it's really tough. It's really hard. So for me, it was, you know, aside from the emotional family connection or attachment, it was very much like it made the most sense for me not to take any part in it. What was it like for, for your other two sisters? Did everyone treat it that same way, like just a business transaction? Yeah, and, you know, I've I've had conversations with each of my sisters individually about where they stand and we're all on the same page that we think it's the best decision for mum and dad and I think that a lot of families struggle with this whole succession planning, especially families who have had um, generations uh, of families on the farm. It, it can be really difficult, but I think for us, all three of us just kind of went, you know what, this is up to mum and dad now. We want to support them in whatever decision they decide to make. And a lot of people, I think, would find it maybe unusual that that, that it has come to this sort of a resolution. But overall, it was just we each had to treat it as if it was yeah, a business transaction. Not to say that there hasn't been a few tears in the process. Mm. It's been a very emotional, very emotional few few months for everyone. Like, I remember going out with dad when I was in primary school and feeding cotton seed off the back of the Triton ute to sheep and then having literally hundreds of potty lambs in our old tennis court in the backyard, like, and, you know, hand feeding them um, during the millennium drought. Like that's, there's sort of memories that really stick in your head. But then on the other side of things, you know, when the drought broke recently at the end of 2019, there was just so much rain around and I've never seen the place looking so green. There was so much buffle grass around and 
the relief of the entire family after that drought broke was it was just it was indescribable and and to experience drought after drought and then the the joyous occasion of drought breaking rain it's hard to describe that feeling in this patch of bush in southern New South Wales, young people are busy collecting seeds that we use to rehabilitate the local environment. Hello, I'm Lucas Forbes, and I'm watching on as teenagers from Lake Kajalago Youth Group down the track pick through saltbush to find the plant's red and yellow seeds. These little seeds will be used as part of a project to revegetate the Sandhill Pines woodland in the New South Wales Riverina region. Andrea Kashmir from Local Land Services is working on the regeneration project and says the threatened ecosystem has been degraded over decades. The sandhills are um, really ancient landforms associated with prior streams and creek lines and lake beds. Um, the cypress pine um, historically was used for building materials. Um, a lot of the pine went into our homesteads and our fence lines um, then, of course, because they grow on nice sandy soils, rabbits um, had a huge impact on them. They're quite finicky about how they regenerate. They need a really hot, um, wet summer with no competition to be re-established. So they've got a few things against them, um, which leads us to where we are now with a, a threatened ecological community. Andrea Kashmir says collecting the seed for the project is a labour-intensive job. She says the Indigenous young people from the Down the Track Youth Group have been a big help. That's been probably the highlight of, of the whole project for me, is um, working with the Down the Track kids. Um, I couldn't have got the amount of seed that I've collected. The target was 70 kilos. We're up to about 85. And there is no way that I could have collected that without um, the support of these kids. And seeing them out in the bush um, is just fabulous. Aside from helping the environment, the seed harvesting has been an enriching experience for the young people taking part as well. I'm from Lake Adelica and my name is Corin Biggs. Yeah, it feels um, pretty good to come out here and do stuff like this, especially with places like down the track. It's a pretty good experience for everyone to come and do it. Katie was telling me before, there's, there's obviously the cultural aspect as well, being out here and learning about country. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it feels pretty good. Sometimes we go out to get some didgeridoos and clapsticks and everything. And today we're just doing another culture thing. It's just collecting saltbush. Jamil Thorpe from Lake Adelico. It's fun. I like doing that. Um, being that down the track for a while. And, yeah, I just love it. Yeah. Down the track, senior social worker Katie Quinn says the program helps the environment and gives vulnerable young people much-needed direction. So the young people out at Lake Ajelligo, they don't get opportunities very often to be able to do new things. So they get stuck in that whirlpool of staying home, doing nothing, and just having nowhere to go. So coming out and doing programs like this gives them the opportunity to be able to try something new. And then coming out and doing the seed collecting is so therapeutic. Uh, you'll see that they just love it, they're calm. Looking at, I suppose, the task itself, you know, I was struck by how, I mean, it's it's almost kind of calming watching it. We're just here with some salt bush. You were just picking some, um, or just kind of like really squeezing some off. 
um, yeah, I mean, how, how fun is it to be able to just come out here and um, pick different seeds and, and contribute to it, I suppose, in that way? Yeah, so coming out and collecting the different seeds is incredibly therapeutic. Like you just sit there and you pick away at the seeds and you get to learn all about the different plants and vegetation around our area and the significance that has for the habitats and for the animals that live here. Is there an extent to which, um, I mean, I think the uh, down the track works a lot with Indigenous youth as well. So is there an aspect of connection to culture and connection to country as well? Yeah, so the connection to culture is really significant. Being able to learn about the native plants that were here and we collect exclusively only native plants. So all of these plants get to be put back into country and they get put back into country at home. So they get to see that process of collecting to growing and then seeing the benefits it has for the environment. Down the track senior youth worker Katie Quinn speaking. Ms Kashmir hopes one of the legacies of the seed harvesting program with the impression it leaves on the young people who have taken part. Yeah, seeing the kids out on the country, in the bush, um, you know, working with the environment, if I can just get one of these kids to become interested in natural resource management going forward, um, I think that would just be a job well done. I'd be so happy. Andrea Kashmir from the New South Wales Local Land Services, ending that story from Lucas Forbes. You can read more about the project she's working on to revegetate the Sandhill Pines woodland in the New South Wales Riverina. You'll find it on the ABC homepage, abc.net.au. Search for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.